I would like to ask you this morning to open to Genesis chapter 20. And uh, we have the luxury of just spending our time with this one chapter this morning. So praise the Lord. You know, not quite so uh, much pressure to get through a lot of material. And hopefully this will, uh, this will be a blessing to us today. So Genesis chapter 20, and the chapter is really not excessively long. So I think I'm going to just read it in its entirety at the outset. So um, I'll ask you to follow along as best you can. Then you'll have a familiarity with the story, and then we'll work through uh, some things here that God has given for, uh, me for to share with you today. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. So just so you know, that Gerar is about 50 miles south of the Hebron area where Abram, or Abraham was. And it says, he sowed, and Abraham said of Sarah, so he's, he's kind of come to a new place now. And it says here, Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not say to me, she is my sister, and she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocency of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides this, she is my sister the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do me at every place at which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and, and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So we'll end our reading here, and would you join me? Let's just ask the Lord's blessing. Father, thank you for this Lord's Day and the privilege that we have now of being here. We're so grateful for your love for us, for your watch care through this past week, <clears throat> for sustaining grace 
we don't just mouth those things. We're very conscious that you have been with us. You have sustained us. You have helped us. You have blessed us. And even you brought us safely to this place, this gathering today, this time to share your word, both in ABF and then the other graded classes, as well as uh, our morning worship service and then the service this evening. So for all of this, we thank you for God's people who will find it important to be here today. And we thank you for the word of God, which we know our church is intent on sharing with people. And we pray, Father, that uh, you would quicken and bless the messages that have been prepared, the lessons that have been prepared. Use them in our hearts and lives. We're uh, come this morning to confess, Lord, that we're needy. And we want you to work in our heart through your word that we hear. And each of us is an individual, and we want you to speak to us. Um, not that we don't pray for each of us to receive a blessing, but we want you to minister to us today. And so help us to have energy and alertness so that we may pay good attention, so that we may participate, so that we may worship effectively, and that uh, we will be drawn closer to you, that we will grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, well, so we are today on Lesson 6, which since we only get 11 lessons means we're going to be passing the halfway place in the, the lesson today. And uh, you might notice in the title, The Test of Old, we are sort of back to the idea of testing. I told you we'd never get too far away from this. And I hate to tell you this, I, I, but, you know, I mean, I can't apologize for what's, what's true in the Bible. But, you know, this is so realistic. This is so true to life. The life of faith is filled with testing because, unfortunately, that's how we grow. And we have to trust in God's wisdom, right? I mean, you know, we have to trust that God knows when to bring testing into our lives, when there's something he needs to teach us, when there's something. And by the way, I, this is something that I cherish. God doesn't waste any of these things. I mean, he not only designs them for our profit, but then down the road, we oftentimes find that he has designed them for us to be able to use share with other people. So God knows what he was, he's doing, even if at times we chafe, and I, I think we sometimes do. Wouldn't it be nice just to kind of, you know, you feel like maybe saying sometimes to God, God, I, I, haven't I made it? Haven't I gotten enough? You know, well, we have to kind of let him decide that for us, right? And we know in our hearts it's really not true. We haven't arrived. So anyway, what we're doing this morning, the old sin or the test of old, and uh, did anything strike you as familiar about the reading? Well, of course, because we've seen this before. In fact, so much so, this is kind of one of those harebrained things, but I mention it only because it is so harebrained that I, I, I delight to sort of take a poke. But, you know, when the, the, some of the liberal, liberal critics are looking at this, they'll say basically that this is the same story as what you have in Genesis chapter 12. Well, that's ridiculous. I mean, you really can't read the two ones in Egypt, ones in Gerar, and, you know, they're just all the details uh, are different. What's common, though, is what, what happens. The sin is the old sin. It's kind of a repeat of exactly what happens when the story first began. And in Genesis chapter 12, we saw Abraham, Abram at that point, go down into Egypt. Again, it's a strange place. He may have some legitimate reasons to be fearful. He says of Sarah that she's his... Uh, sister. The only thing that we kind of have to account for in this is, now I'm sort of anticipating some things we're going to see in a moment, but um, at least 20 years have passed. So 
just to kind of think a little bit about just, you know, kind of the day-to-day -day details. Back in Genesis chapter 12, what you read about Sarah is that she was attractive. Now, she would have been 65 then. Okay? If, if Abram was 75 when he came into the land of Egypt, and if they went down, or into the land of Canaan, and if they went down to Egypt shortly after that, she was 10 years younger, so she was 65. Well, you have to kind of take into account, right, that she lived to be 127, Abraham lived to be 175, and you do have to take into account the longer age span uh, of the patriarchs. And so, you know, you can kind of see that, but in this particular case, with another 20 years passing, this probably maybe, I mean, by, this is all kind of guesswork really, but this probably equates to maybe 50s, mid-50s for a, a lady today. So why is it that Abimelech, I mean, it, it, it doesn't seem like it would be quite the same, but yet he still does the same thing that Pharaoh did. And I would suggest to you that, well, we weren't there, but I would also suggest to you there are other factors because marriage alliances in the Bible, I mean, Abraham is an attractive person to have a, he's powerful, he has a, a large household, he's wealthy. So undoubtedly there are reasons to do these things and uh, that's about the only thing that we have to kind of think about and maybe ponder just a little bit. But so then the question arises, um, if the story is so similar and if the story, then why does God include it? And one of the things you learn in studying the Bible is God doesn't waste anything he puts in the Bible either. So if God thinks we need to hear this again, there have to be things he wants us to learn. And I think there are some really vital lessons here. I'm not saying that we will talk about all of it this morning. There's probably a lot more. But what I want to talk about is the old sin. The old sin. And if you think about the doctrine of sin, you know, you have a 50 cent word to describe that as harmartiology. But the doctrine of sin, and, and I personally have the opinion that we don't do enough preaching on that. I think that it's very easy to kind of get away from what the Bible really has to say about sin. And more specifically, when you think about the believer, I'm talking about indwelling sin. And of course, through through the years of church history and different people who have studied the Bible, people have had different opinions about this. And I think you know there are some people, we won't get into calling out, but I think you know there are some people who actually think that you can come to the place where you don't sin anymore. I've never met one, have you? And I sort of suspect, with a little bit of a smirk, that if you were to press a person who held that belief enough, you could probably provoke them to sin, but that might not be, you might not be supposed to do that, but I suspect that you probably could. But what do we think about indwelling sin? And I, I pose this question again, not only what do we think about indwelling sin, but do you think sometimes it's easy for us as believers to kind of um, make peace with this idea and kind of figure that, well, you know, um, we've grown a lot over 20 years, and a lot of those things that we struggled with in the early days of our Christian experience, we've kind of gotten past that now. Well, it, I, I think, I think uh, not only that, but do we categorize sins as believers? Possibly. Right? I mean, so, like, you've got these, like, big sins up here. And then these aren't so bad. And I think, I think Jerry Bridges wrote a book, Acceptable Sin. Something, or someone wrote that. 
So we as believers, in our minds, we, oh, that's sin. That, that's an acceptable sin. But I agree with you. We don't preach enough on, I mean, God, God hates sin no matter if it's the littlest sin or a big sin. So. Okay, that's all very true. But now I want to kind of steer us back actually to the point that I'm interested in. Is it possible, yeah, I think he's right, that sometimes there are some things that we just kind of pass off as really, those aren't really big deals. That's, I think that's absolutely true. I'm more thinking about the fact that is it, is it possible for us to sort of settle down and get comfortable and figure, well, you know, some of those things I, I struggled with in the past, I've kind of really overcome those. I'm past that. And, you know, what that really betrays is the fact that we haven't studied our Bible enough about sin. We don't really understand the seriousness of indwelling sin. We don't really, frankly, what we don't really understand is, is total depravity. We don't understand how depraved sinners are and that really nothing in this life changes that. Yes, we grow in grace, but the flesh is still the flesh. And I think that, that, that as this unfolds, you'll see a little bit more of this. So here's the thing. I mean, here is something that you might have every reason to think, and we might even tend to think this way. Here's something that happened in the life of Abraham 20 years ago. And he got into a dust-up by going down in there to Egypt. That didn't end well. If you remember that story, I mean, he basically got deported. Pharaoh was so upset with him that he gave him the boots, said, don't come back. So you would think that Abraham would have kind of gotten a little bit of the message. After all, what we talked about was he goes back up, he goes to the, to the altar that he had made in the beginning. He kind of uh, re-initiates uh, and reinvigorates his worship of God. But I phrased it this way on purpose. Here it is more than 20 years later, and this old sin, the very same thing that was a stumbling block to him when he went down into Egypt, it comes roaring back. And I think there are at least two reasons. I, I always say at least, or many times that's how I tend to phrase things, because I don't want to give you the impression that I think that what I'm giving you is exhaustive. But here are a couple things to think about. Why did that happen? And in our lives, how might we be susceptible if we have a tendency with respect to that same thinking and then get burnt because all of a sudden something comes roaring back that we thought we were past and we thought we had grown in grace enough that we didn't have to really watch ourselves in that area any longer and boom, here we are, it trips us up again. First of all, I think if you look at this carefully and look at the text, I don't think Abraham really ever made a clean break with it. That's necessary. When, when, when this kind of thing happens in our lives, even if it was 20 years ago, it's important for us to understand, this is serious, this breaks my fellowship with God. Apparently I have a, a, a potential weakness in this area, but this is wrong. I can't make excuses for myself, and I have to take the same position about this sin that God does. But if you look at verse 13, there's a, just a little hint in that language there. Let me read this to you again. I think it's an important hint. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, he's defending himself now to Abimelech. He says, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. So what, what he's essentially testifying to and acknowledging here is that more than 20 years ago, when he left Ur of the Chaldees, this was the deal they made. And he'd never really identified that deal as sinful and wrong. He'd never really gone back to Sarah and said, you know, that was just plain wrong. And we can't do that anymore. No, 
He's justifying it now to Abimelech based on the fact that, well, you know, this has been my practice or this has been my understanding. All right, so what happened was he laid the groundwork for this to come back and nip him again because he never really broke with it. And when you start looking at New Testament verses that give us insight into that, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Well, if you're going to make some provision for the flesh, you know, like if you're going to take a bad magazine and say, well, pornography's wrong. I better get rid of that. So you just put it up on a shelf out of, out of your reach. Seems to me like, you know, you've made a little bit of provision for the flesh. You still have access to that if you decide you're weak enough and need it. You better take the thing out and burn it and just get, make a clean break with it, right? So this is what I'm talking about, and I think that's the first reason. I better not keep going. But secondly, I think he failed in another area. And I just, I want to make this a point. I want to remind myself of it today. I want to remind you of it today. Self-watch is one of the most important things that we need to maintain in the light of indwelling sin. See, sin is still there. So if you take it lightly, it's just likely to rear its ugly head and come roaring back when you least expect it. But if you're watching, if you're on guard, and what do I mean by this? Well, let me illustrate. Um, years ago, Charles Spurgeon wrote a classic, and I'd be surprised if, if a number of people here haven't read this book, but Spurgeon had the college, I think, some of you have, who have read biographies or studied his life know this. Spurgeon had the college for his students. And he delivered a series of lectures to those students in his, you know, his college where he was training young ministers. Eventually, that was all put together and was published as a book that's called Lectures to My Students. How many are familiar with the book or know the name? Okay, good, a number of you. Well, <laughs> you, you could probably read that whether you're a a prospective pastor or minister or not and get a lot of help from it. But my point is, his very first chapter in that book is entitled, The Minister's Self-Watch. And basically what he's saying to these young ministerial students is, you better keep on guard. You better watch yourself. I have some scriptures I just wanted to throw at you to think about. I want to show you a progression in this. This is the whole point of using this passage. Self-watch. So 23 says of Proverbs 4, keep your heart with all vigilance. I think the King James is diligence there, doesn't it? Anyway, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Self-watch, see, keep an eye on yourself. Take care of yourself. Maintain your spiritual life. Have your devotions. Do your prayers. Don't let yourself go. What happens if you do fail to maintain that vigilance, that self-watch? Well, the first thing you know, you have a tendency to drift off into crooked speech. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. What's the next thing? Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth does what? speaks, so it's kind of interesting that he mentions speech first. You know, watch yourself first thing. You know, you'll be using, you'll be using speech in an unhealthy and an, in an unscriptural man, manner. Verse 25, what's the next thing that happens? 
let your eyes look directly forward and your graze, <laughs> gaze be straight before you. Ponder, you'll stop there. The next thing that'll happen is you'll have a roving eye. Don't do that. I'm talking to everybody here. Don't do that. Keep your eyes straight forward because if you make provision for the flesh, if you allow for temptation, you plant seeds. All right, look at the next one. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. So there are three things that happen when we fail to maintain self-watch. First of all, you drift off into speech that's not good. Then your eyes wander to things that aren't good. And first thing you know, it's a progression, see? First it's just your mouth, and then it's your eyes, and now your feet. You're going in the wrong direction. This is why it's so important. When you come over to the New Testament, and you know this chapter is right from where he'd been. Jesus had been so desperately trying to warn the apostles about what was going to happen that night, and they didn't listen to his warnings, and so he comes back, and they're asleep, the three that are with him in the garden. They're asleep, and this is what he says to them. Watch and pray. Better keep your eyes open, spiritually speaking. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So now, here's something I just want to say. In, maybe somebody says, okay, we've got to be fair to Abraham, so let's be fair to Abraham. We today, it's true, may have more biblical reminders than we may think Abraham had. It is true we have the advantage, back to your, your comment in the beginning, who has it more difficult? Well, it is true, we have the whole Bible, and we have all of this to profit from and all of this to guide us and help us. But it's not true that Abraham wasn't without some scriptural and other admonition from God in this respect. And I don't have time to, I've already probably spent too much time on this, but let me take you back to at least one of these. So I didn't put this one in the list, but to me this is maybe where we need to start this idea. Genesis chapter 4 and I want you to see what the Lord says to Cain. So in Genesis 4, 6, watch this. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not well, look at this. Sin is crouching at the door. It desi its desire is for you, but you must rule over it, or you must master it. It would sure help us, wouldn't it? Of course, you don't have to go outside the door, but it would sure help us if every day we got up and thought of sin as like a contract killer that was on the loose. If you had a situation like that, I think you'd be careful and cautious when you went out. And that's how sin is. Sin is always lying in wait, always looking for that opportune time to trip us up. And if we believe that, then we'll act a certain way. So Abraham knew of these things, uh, and I think we'll just stop there. I do want to call your attention to that 921. That was the idea of Noah. Well, Noah, I mean, came through all of that. The flood, all of that, you hardly get past the coming out of the ark and the flood, then Noah's, <laughs> Noah becomes intoxicated. 
So, I mean, it, it, the, it's not like Abraham was totally in the dark about this. I think he got careless. I think we often get careless, and that's the whole point of this, because why? The old sin is still present. The sin nature is still there. All right, let's move on. Here's something else. The old sin is still wrong. No matter how you try to justify it, because Abraham did, and that's what I want to spend the next couple minutes talking about. So, Abimelech is justly offended. I don't think we need to spend much time with that. But Abraham's defense, had Pharaoh given him the opportunity to make his defense, I think it would have been just as feeble-sounding to Pharaoh as it was to Abimelech. But I have four things I want you to think about here in what, what Abraham has to say as he attempts to justify this to Abimelech. The first one is that, to me, it represents weak faith because look at what he says in verse number 11. Abraham said, I did it because there is no fear of God at all in this place. So he's saying, I was afraid. That's why Abimelech asks him, what did you see? He's representing that he was afraid. He thought, well, I'm out here with these pagans, and I, you know, I don't know what to think. I, I, I don't know what to... But God had made certain promises. I'm not saying any of this is easy, folks. And, and there is a sense in which God has given us fear. Fear can be a very healthy uh, factor in our lives, but there are other times when it's really incompatible with faith. What kind of faith? Well, God made all these promises to him that it's really inc incompatible with believing that and not believing that God's going to protect him and take care of him, which doesn't mean we should be incautious or foolish. It doesn't mean that people who take measures for their own self-protection don't have any faith. That's not the point at all. The point is that really this was a lapse in his faith, just as it was a lapse in his faith when he went down into, and I'm not trying to be unkind to Abraham because Lord knows we all have these situations happen in our lives, but I have plenty of verses to document this. Proverbs 19.25, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoso trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Psalm 20 verse 7 says, some trust in chariots, some in horses. We're supposed to trust in the Lord. Proverbs says, trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not to thine own understanding. That is exactly what's going on here. I've got I to help God out. God's not, I, I'm worried that God might slip up. And this could be a bad place. This could be an unsafe place. Well, God's not going to slip up. But we do the same thing, right? So that's the first thing. Secondly, he has his facts wrong. So his faith lapses and his facts are wrong. He says to Abimelech, um, Abimelech says at the end of verse 10, what did you see that you did this thing? And he says, well, I did it because there is no fear of God in this. Place. Well, it turns out it seems like Abimelech comes off better in the story than Abraham does. It, there seems to be plenty of fear of God on Abimelech's part. God comes to him in a dream and says, you're a dead man. It reminds me of Benjamin Netanyahu talking about that guy who's the head of Hamas. and He said, he's a walking dead man. It just, when I read that, it just kind of makes me chuckle a little bit. That's a pretty strong thing to have God tell you, you're dead. You're dead. Well, that'd get my attention, wouldn't it? Get your attention. And it got Abimelech's attention, and he immediately took action in this respect. And he says to God, this is an interesting point to consider. He says to God in, what is it, verse uh, 4, as he speaks back to God, now, Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? It just so happens 
the word that ESV translates innocent there is the same word that Abraham uses when he speaks of righteous. When he has that prayer about, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So in a sense, there's really a hypocritical bent to this because Abraham is putting Abimelech in a position of exactly what he thought God would be wrong to do in reference to righteous people in in Sodom. So, (laughs) I think, you know, as I say, Abimelech actually comes off a little better in the story. So he was wrong. And folks, you know, there's a proverb that addresses this only in a different avenue, but it makes the same point. Proverbs 18.13, which I, I did not list there for you, but it says, He that answereth a matter before he heareth it, it is a folly and shame to him. So we're supposed to know the facts, right? Especially if we're going to start talking about it. We're supposed to know the facts. The Bible tells us to do this. Well, he's acting in the light of facts that he really hasn't ascertained. And he hasn't even given Abimelech the, the benefit of the doubt. So that would be my, and Abimelech, you know, obviously rebuts that. Verse number, yeah, number three, his motivation is self-serving. So we could get into a 25-minute discussion, which we don't have time for, about is this a lie or is this a lie? He says in verse 12, Besides, so it's kind of like now we're double, doubling down. Do you get that? I'm, do, I'm double down now uh, with my, my justification. When God caused me, so it's, you know, part of this is God's fault. I was fine in error. <laughs> you know, but anyway, you know, we do that, right? So um, besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. So you really expect that to satisfy Abimelech, that flimsy excuse. So this is a lie or is this not a lie? It's a lie. And the reason, you say, well, didn't the midwives tell a fib? Mm-hmm. Didn't Rahab tell a fib? Mm-hmm. There's a big difference. And I'm not going to get into an argument with you about this because everybody has to search this out for his own. But the big difference is motivation. What were the midwives? What was their motivation? Was it self-serving? Was it, was it for their own self-protection or for their own self-advancement? Quite the opposite. It was to take what they best understood as the moral high ground and preserve life. They were not going to do what the king said because it violated their moral principles. Was Rahab trying to protect herself when she protected the spies. No, in fact, she exposed herself. Had the king detected that she was dishonest, she would have exposed herself to his anger. Was Abraham's motive higher? Was he on the moral high ground in this? Absolutely not. His motivation was self-serving. And so this is perhaps some help in understanding why it is that God commended the midwives and why it is that the Bible commends Rahab. And no condemnation is issued in respect to those people, even though we know they were not technically honest. So here's my question for you if you want to argue. That's fine, but we don't have time right now. You can come argue with me later if you want. But here's my point. Was Corey, were Corey Tenboon's parents wrong when they hid 
Jews? Since we're so smart and so ready to condemn people, the Gestapo comes and knocks on your door and says, you have any Jews here? Oh no, we don't have any Jews. What would you do? So you have to look at these things and it's not always quite so cut and dry and I want to make one thing abundantly clear. I am not trying to give license to or make light of lying. The Bible's quite clear on this, but when you're having to judge between these sticky situations which do in fact come up in life, one thing that I, this is what I'm saying, one thing that will help you perhaps to understand or to, 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 to chart a way forward is, what's my motivation in this? Was I, was I afraid I was gonna get in trouble so I lied? Okay, that's a lie. But if there's a different situation in which, to the best of your ability, even though maybe we would come back later, maybe you would come back later and say, well, that was misguided, but with the light you have at the time, when the best ability you have to discern the situation, you're put in that situation and you're trying to do right, I think that is a mitigating factor, and the rest we'll have to let God sort out. I can only tell you that he doesn't condemn the midwives and he doesn't condemn Rahab. So, you can think about that, but you don't have to worry about it here. I'm telling you, Abraham lied. And the reason that I know he lied, there's none of this little white lie business and there's not a little half-truth business. He lied. It's just that simple, and that's wrong. So I had the verses and we didn't take the time. Fourth thing is, his leadership is lacking. So what kind of example is he to Sarah when he comes in 25 years earlier and says, you know, we've got to leave her where we're safe and secure. Everything's great. We're going to probably encounter all kinds of situations where maybe we might be in jeopardy. And so here's the thing. I mean, Abraham knew he had a nice, attractive-looking wife. So he said, you, you just say you're my sister. Well, that's great leadership. Especially when we men want to make a, a point to the fact that we're the spiritual head of the home. Great. Then we have to act like it have to set the right example for our wives. And if we don't set the right example for our wives, then we have to come back later and tell them, you know, I blew it there, I'm really sorry. And keep short accounts and straighten up. Abraham didn't do that. This thing went on and in fact, how we know it was still in force was Abimelech says it himself. He says, so he, uh, up here he said, um, and Abraham, verse 2, said to, of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister, God came to Abimelech, and Abimelech says, did he not say, verse 5, to me, she is my sister, and she herself, he is my brother. So in effect, he becomes a stumbling block to his wife. And if we're going to punch holes in, in Sarah, or point fingers at Sarah and say, you know, she shouldn't have been engaged in all that scheming back in chapter 16. Well, should Abraham have been involved in this scheming here? It, it, it does cut both ways. So the old sin is still wrong. We just live longer and get better at finding ways to excuse it, which kind of comes back to your acceptable sins. We just get better at defending ourselves. Hmm. Let's go to the last thing. The old sin still has consequences. Man, I wish there were a way out of that, but there isn't. But here's something interesting. This is the first occurrence in the Bible. Really? Yes. 
This is the first occurrence in the Bible of the word prophet. Verse 7, God says to Abimelech, I bet this was interesting, now, when, now then return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. The first occurrence in the Bible. You know, and, and, and we kind of have the impression of what a prophet's supposed to be, right, from reading the Bible. So there's a huge loss of testimony here, just like there was in Egypt, which is why he was deported. Pharaoh didn't even countenance his excuses. Pharaoh just said, leave. I mean, he was thoroughly discredited there. Things get patched up here with Abimelech, which is good, and we'll have occasion to talk a little bit more about that. But I just want to leave it this way with you, and we might even have a couple minutes left in case there are questions. But God stands by his servant. In other words, you don't find God embarrassing or condemning Abraham in front of Abimelech. In other words, he says to him in verse number 7, return the man's wife. That much is wrong. And he's a prophet. He'll pray for you. And, and there's nothing here later on. That's exactly what ends up happening. It says in verse 17, Abraham prayed to God and Abimelech, uh, to God, and God healed Abimelech, and he also healed his wife, so forth and so on. So all throughout, the story is silent as to God hanging out his servant to dry in front of this Philistine. This man who was ostensibly, I mean, we didn't, don't see his heart, but ostensibly he was not what we would think of as a believer, though he comes off better in the story than the believer. But what the story also doesn't tell us is, is how God dealt with him in private. So we might be on thin ice if we say too much, but we're not on thin ice with Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. So I don't think that we would be in error to assume that God has his own dealings with Abraham, that God reproves him in the, in the way and manner that he sees fit. And as I said last week, you know, folks, we can choose our sin, but we can't choose the consequences. And as surely as seeds bud into plants, consequences follow sins. And the admonition that the New Testament is to us, be not deceived, God is not mocked, can't get away. Whatsoever man soweth that shall he also reap. This is sobering. It's something that we just need to be reminded of on a regular basis because sin has its consequences and we need to fear God. At the same time we fear God, we also need to be very respectful of, uh, in the sense that we watch and we maintain our alertness and recognize that sin is still sin. I guess we didn't look at the verses, but Jesus said to Nicodemus, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. The two don't mix. It's like oil and water. So the believer has a new self, a new nature, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. But the old self is still there. And the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it?
So it is a grievous mistake. It is an incredible disrespect of the power of sin and of our fallen nature to live in a careless manner and to believe that we're incapable of some of these things that other people do or even of things we've done in the past if we get careless and get away from God. So God doesn't gloss over the failures of his servant. I think that that's another important lesson from this story. You know, I mean, he, he, he puts it in the Bible. God doesn't hang Abraham out to dry in front of Abimelech, but he puts it in the Bible <laughs> for us to read. You know, so, I mean, it's, he shares these things for our learning and for our, our benefit. And I don't mean to leave it on a low note, but God does rescue Abraham from the mess. Thank God he's done that a many a time. But make no mistake about it, it was a mess. <laughs> so better, wouldn't you agree, better just not to make the mess. And that's kind of what this is about. Okay, we have two minutes Question or comment today? Yes, sir, uh, Dan. Okay. Well, we do know that the devil is a deceiver, so in that you're absolutely correct. That's one of his chosen tools. Someone else? Well, I mean, I think, um, it's, like you said, it's real easy to throw stones. But, I mean, I, I was just thinking in my mind, like, if I were in today's world driving to Virginia, and if I get to Virginia, and, and it was custom in that state to, for, for them to take my wife, like, <laughs> am I, I going to come up with some sort of... <coughs> try to come up with some sort of story or something because like was it was it customary to go to other places and for them to just take someone's wife no not your wife uh your sister yes your sister yes because it was a it was a that's why he felt he was safer that way if if the attraction was there either because of physical beauty or because of wealth to marry sarah and she's his wife then you're in danger of being killed for that. That's the problem. If, 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 if you're the, she's your sister, instead of being in danger for your life, you're putting yourself up to be treated very well, wined and dined. They would kill, they would kill men just to take the women. Looks that way. <laughs> Can't say I've ever been put in that position, but uh, don't try me. I'm going to do my best to protect my family. Absolutely. What he was saying was, we get to the very next chapter, and so it's apparent that God steps in to protect Abraham. God cleans the mess up. But the counterpoint to what you just said is, which kind of makes this a little more serious in terms of Abraham, Abraham's willing to put that into jeopardy. And um, God has to come in and clean the mess up, but absolutely, God is going to protect 
he's made these promises to Abraham, and even if Abraham can't quite get a hold of them in the full faith that they merit, uh, I mean, this is, he, he did, but he, he had lapses. God's going to be sure he's faithful to his word. Okay, good comments, good questions. I wish we sometimes had more time for them, but thanks for your patience. It is time to stop, though. Father, we do thank you that we can spend time with your word, and there's so much in your word that's challenging and helpful and encouraging. But I pray, Lord, that each of us would be duly admonished today about the need to to give um, diligence to keep ourselves close to you and right with you so we don't stray off into make some mess. And forgive us, Lord, for those times when we have made messes and we've just tried to justify them rather than make them right. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.